Well, good morning, Sailorville Church. If you brought a copy of Scripture, you can find that little postcard right in front of the book of Hebrews called Philemon. And we will conclude our time and this short study we've had in this book on friendships, the beauty of a genuine friendship uh, this morning. If you're like me uh, and you go uh, shopping with your wife, as soon as you walk into the mall, it doesn't matter how much sleep I've had or how much energy I have, as soon as I walk into that mall or that grocery store, a paw comes over me. i got to find a place to sit. And that was what it was like for this guy that was uh, in a grocery store with his wife uh, one day. He got tired of shopping, so he went to the front, found a seat to sit and wait for his wife to get done. But as she was approaching the, um, uh, you know, the tellers, he noticed that she, had, she was engaged in quite a conversation with a man that she, he'd never seen before. And they were talking very amiably with back and forth with one another. But he, he wondered what's going on here. And they continued talking all the way through the, the grocery line until the guy got, ahead, got down ahead of her and he waved and she waved back at him and he walked out the door. And he was just, the husband was just unbelievably curious, obviously. I would be too. And he said, uh, his wife came up to him and he said, so what, what was that? I've never seen him before. I, she goes, I haven't either. First time I ever met him. Well, what was going on here? She goes, well, we just, we met in the aisle down here. We just started talking over a product or something. And then we just talked about all kinds of religious things like heaven and hell being related to, uh, to God. And he even asked me if I, if I knew if I died, uh, if I'd go to heaven or not. The husband was livid at this point. By that time, the guy's driving out the parking lot. You can see him. He goes, well, that was none of his business. To which his wife responded by saying, that's funny. If you'd have seen the look on his face, you'd have thought it was his business. We're talking about the business today of befriending people for the gospel's sake. The best friends that Paul ever made he made through the gospel, and I would concur. I'd say dittos. And we're going to just pick it up right where we left off. I'll gobble up the context as we go. Philemon 19, where Paul says he's writing to Philemon. He says, I, Paul, write this with my own hand. I will repay it. I'll pay, I'll pay back the debt that Onesimus, your slave, who's coming back to you, who's standing right in front of you, owes you. I'll pay it back. Uh, to say nothing of your owing even me, your own self, hmm? The hum, that's not actually in there, but kind of implied. Yes, brother, I want some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. A confident of your obedience, I write to you knowing that you will do even more than I say. At the same time, prepare a guest room for me. For I'm hoping that through your prayers, I will be graciously given to you. Remember, Paul's in prison in Rome, so he's trusting through his prayers he's going to get released. So here is Onesimus. He's a slave from Colossae who has run away from his master Philemon, stolen from him in the process, gone hundreds of miles away to get lost into the bowels of Rome, so to speak, where almost a million people are. As he fled his master, he discovered that the, his real, his true master had a bigger circumference than what, what, he had to, what he had bargained for. In Rome, by chance, Onesimus runs into the apostle Paul and is converted to Christ. 
becomes a servant to Paul. He's discipled by Paul. The text here tells us that he becomes the very heart of Paul, verse 12. Paul loves this guy. And now over a period of time, Paul sends him back with another associate by the name of Tychicus. He sends Onesimus back to his slave, or to his master, Philemon, with Tychicus and two letters, if you'll remember. Not just this little postcard, Philemon, but the letter to the church, which happened to be meeting in Philemon's home. So he comes with two letters, Philemon and the letter to the Colossian church. Remember that, because we'll come back to it at the end of our time here this morning. And he does so, in this letter, he's pleading with Philemon to see the hand of God in this whole matter, providentially taking this guy who's running from you, stole from you, comes into, into Rome only to meet me, only to meet Jesus, only to become my very heart, only for me to be sending back to you. You gotta see God's hand in this. Forgive him, release him of his debt, and you know, in the process, maybe send it back to me too, because I could use him. And by the way, let me just cap capture the vibe here by backing up to verse 13 where it says, Paul says to Philemon, I would, have, I would have been glad to keep Onesimus with me in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment in the gospel. But I preferred to do nothing without your consent in order that your goodness might not be by compulsion but by your own accord. For this perhaps is why he was parted from you for a while. Have you ever thought of that? It's why uh, that, that he might that is, you might have him back forever. No longer as a slave, but more than a slave, a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. So the only question is, did this really happen? If you've been with us, you know this is one of those cliffhanger epistles. We're not told. I mean, it's a, it's a real-life situation where Onesimus has run from his, his, his master Philemon, Paul, Talks about this in the letter, how he got saved. I'm sending him back. Please release him to come minister to me. Be, be your missionary on my behalf. We don't know. The letter doesn't tell us if Philemon actually allowed that to happen. But history tells us it probably did happen. This is really interesting. About 50 years later, another famous pastor, bishop, his name was Ignatius. He would die for his faith. As he was being taken to Rome, where he would be executed, he wrote letters to the various major churches in Asia Minor, and one of them was to the bishop of Ephesus, whose name was, wait for it, Onesimus. How cool is that? I mean, Onesimus's testimony was the stuff of, you know, of putting up, put it on the platform, splash it on social media. If he was saved today, we, we would say, hey, go to Sailorville's website. You gotta, you gotta hear Onesimus's testimony. It's awesome. See God's hand in it, how God used the great apostle Paul to lead him to Christ. It was just amazing. You got to listen to the testimony. And if you're involved in evangelism, you would look at a testimony like Onesimus and you'd say, well, yeah, you know, that's, guys like that get saved when they run into Pastor Pat or Pastor Chuck or Pastor Lori, and she's not a pastor, but you know, she leads people to Jesus. I mean, but not me, you know, I'm just, that's just not me, you know, I'm just, I can't do that. Well, let me ask you this. What about Philemon? Philemon, who the letter's addressed to. We're not told how he got saved, but we know that he did get saved. Verse 19 very clearly points out that Paul led him to Christ. How did he get saved? How do we know it wasn't something incredibly credible? <laughs> Just 
normal. Maybe Philemon went and heard Paul preach or give a speech. Maybe he was just in the audience and he heard the gospel, that Christ died for him and rose again. It made sense. He was convicted of his sin, just quietly from his heart, repented and placed his faith in Jesus. Was that possible? Is that possible? Of course it was. It'd be like most of your testimonies. Nothing dramatic, nothing incredible. But as I've often said, you don't need an incredible testimony as long as it's a credible testimony, one that makes sense. I tell you that because when we said goodbye to our own Pastor Chuck and company a few weeks ago, we had the big little ballyhoo here on Sunday night. Big deal, a lot of fun. And very serious, a lot of tears. We had a little reception afterwards. Most people had left, just a handful of us left. And there was a young woman in our church who said to me in tears, she said, Pastor Pat, she says, I, I, uh, I just have to tell you, I, whenever Chuck taught on evangelism, I always walked away thinking, I can do this. I can do this. And I said to her, I said, you know, you just paid him the greatest compliment you could possibly pay, Pastor Chuck. Which means his teaching didn't just instruct, but it inspired to the point, place where you, the shy person even, can do this. Now, in these final words in Philemon, Paul's words to his friend Philemon, who he has personally led to Christ, he's going to inspire you and me to befriend others for the gospel. Now, look at verse 19. I just alluded to it. In fact, I'm gonna, you can look at it or I'll put it up there for you. This is a shocking statement. I mean, it's almost funny when he says, besides, uh, to say nothing to the fact that you owe me your own self, I mean, it's like, you owe me. He didn't always do that. He didn't always pull that card out. But Paul would say things like this when he wanted to lean into somebody. Uh, just last week, we, we had a short business meeting. Some of you were a part of that. And uh, we have a we have a, um, a pastor who's not been with us for 30 years, but he pastored Sailorville Church for almost a decade. And uh, he's in poor health. He's in retirement. He can't really supplement his income anymore. And so we said, let's give him a pile of money and help him out. So we voted to give him $10,000. We, we said, we're making a motion to give him $10,000. The handful of people who were here during his ministry, they're like, I, I move, I move. Why? What were they saying? They're saying, we owe him. He, he gave us his life for a decade. We owe him. And isn't it true that we feel a certain indebtedness towards those who have shared Jesus with us? Isn't that true? Certainly it's true. If you don't feel that, there's something wrong with you. You've got a problem with gratitude. Now, all praise to God. He's the one who saves. Amen. But thank God for the means, the conduits, the people that he brings into our lives Individually, corporately, whether you hear it preached from the pulpit or conversationally along the side. You thank God for those people. Now, back it up to verse 10. I'm, we're going to put it up there for you because this is where I'm going I'm to launch into the, the, the balance of our time this morning from this text. Paul says, I appeal to you. He's writing to Philemon. Now, remember Philemon, Onesimus the slave has showed up with, showing up with Tychicus with two epistles Colossians, Philemon, he's reading this with Onesimus right there. And he says to Philemon, I appeal to you for my child. It's a beautiful, very intimate word, a little technon, a little mean, means a uh, little born one. He's, it's, he's talking spiritually. Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. 
Now, no mistaking the terminology here. Paul has led Onesimus to Christ, and he wants Philemon to know this. And as I said, Paul didn't usually pull out these kinds of statements like, uh, I fathered him, you know, and, and to Philemon, you owe me. He didn't do that very often unless he was trying to lean into them to get them to move. He wants Philemon, obviously, to accept, forgive Onesimus' his debt, and et cetera, et cetera. But he did do it to the Corinthians. Remember, the Corinthians were that, that crazy church. They were, they were lionizing other preachers and making big deal, and they were, they were just so confused. And Paul had to remind them, even though they were listening to all kinds of teachers, Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, he says, for though you have countless guides in Christ, you don't have many fathers. And then watch this, boom. For I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Again, Paul pulls that card out to remind them that he led them to Christ. Just the other day, I was hanging out with a couple of men, business guys in the community that I had the joy of leading to Christ very excited about the gospel, very excited about growing in Christ. We were sitting down at a lo local restaurant, and one of them said to me, hey, don't feel bad if you have to treat me like a child by going through this stuff. I said, hey, I'm just thankful for your humility. There is a sense in which if you're a Christian, you're supposed to be growing and maturing. At the same time, we should always look at ourselves as children of God. Amen? Always learning that blessed my heart. And by the way, the expression, I led him to Christ, does that bother you? Does it bother you when someone says, I led Shelly to Christ, I led Tim to Christ? Well, it should bother you if they say it proudly, but I would submit to you that it's a legitimate statement, and it really comes from Scripture itself. I think it comes from John chapter 1, where we're told, Andrew brought Peter to Jesus. Have you ever read that? Now, the text actually just uses pronouns, but I'm supplying the names that are actually there. Andrew brought his brother Peter to Jesus. Now, think about that. I want you to stare at that for a minute because that might not be the most important thing when it comes to evangelism, but it might be the most encouraging thing that you're going to hear. Now, back to that expression, I led so-and-so to Christ. Is it, I'm submitting to you this morning, it's a good expression. It's a good phrase. The very, listen, on, on, on its own merit, on its own merit, the very expression uh, is, is humble. To say, to say uh, I led someone to Christ isn't, isn't saying you saved them. It's just said you led them to Jesus. If I lead you to Jesus, that's as far as I can go, right? That's as far as I can go. I can't save you any more than I could create a, a billion dollars worth of gold bullion from Fort Knox. Okay, I could tell you about Fort Knox. I could take you up to the gate of Fort Knox. I could describe Fort Knox to you. And if I'm really creative, I could probably imagine what's inside of Fort Knox and all of the gold bullion that's in there stacked up. But that's about it. I'm not going to get you inside Fort Knox. And I can't get you into heaven either. I can take you to the door. And that's where I have to leave you. And Jesus, by the way, said, I am the door. He who enters by me will be saved. Right? So you have to open it. 
You have to repent of your sin. You have to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. You have to believe that he died personally for you. You have to believe that he rose again from the dead for you. You have to turn to him and be saved. Now, God's the one who saves, but when we lead somebody to Jesus, we're just taking him to the door. That's where we leave you. Now, to use another metaphor, Paul uses, he loves metaphors. He uses another one in 1 Corinthians Chapter 3, when he says, he reminds the Corinthians, I planted, Apollos watered, God brought the what? He brought the increase. Because it's God who saves. So, in evangelism, it doesn't matter if you're on the front end, the back end, or somewhere in the middle. It's all joy to be able to see God at work, is it not? Just the other day, I got an email from a guy. I just about deleted it upon sight. Looked like a junk mail to me. Except I noted a personal note to me on the front end of the email, which maybe, oh, I better at least look at it before I delete it. Here's a guy that's a leader of a network that interacts with churches and government in order to you know, impact you know, government officials for gospel purposes. It seemed like a legit thing. And it was a promo, but he says to me, he says, hey, Pat, I just want you to know, I attended Sailorville Church many years ago when I was not a Christian. And, I, I, and the, the reason I came to your church was for a funeral. And I heard you give the gospel. And I became convicted of my sin. And I, I heard the gospel for the first time. He goes, I went from there, I ran, ran into somebody else, ended up in another Bible-believing church where I, where I trusted Jesus as my Savior. How cool is that? Now, in that case, I was on the front end. I didn't even know the guy got saved. I didn't even know God used me in the, in the matter. And you won't either. In many, and maybe even most cases. But either way, we rejoice, right? One sows, other, another reaps, everybody rejoices. Now remember, Onesimus, the runaway slave, is now being sent back to Philemon. He's standing there with not one but two letters because Philemon is, the church at Colossae is meeting in his home. So un, and I have no doubt that it was Philemon himself who held the letter to the Colossians in his hand while he held the, his own personal letter from Paul to him. Why do I tell you that? Because they're parallel letters, even though different. Uh, that is contemporary. I want you to go to Colossians chapter 4. This is where we're going to end our time. This is the balance of our time, Colossians chapter 4. We, we read it. We read through it a little bit earlier, and I want you to see the words again. Because I think this is the greatest passage in all the New Testament for how you and I are to approach others and befriend them for the gospel. Look at it again. Continue steadfastly, Paul writes to the Colossians and to Philemon, who probably read it before anybody. Being watchful, key word in it, with thanksgiving at the same time, pray for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I'm in prison that I may make it, say it, clear, keyword, which is how I ought to speak. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, that's the unbelievers. Some of you are in this category. Making the best use of the time. The Greek, the, the, you know, the old, if, you got, if you're rocking an old King James, bang, it's spot on. Redeeming the time, that's what the word means. Buying up the opportunity. Let your speech always be gracious seasoned with salt so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. So, 
I'm proposing to you, Sailorville Church, that we adopt the spirit and the action of this passage in our endeavors to befriend people for Jesus. If we adopt Paul's prayer and pursuit, leading people to Jesus, we will be able to say with the woman I talked to after the celebration of Chuck, we can do this. We can do this. You can do this. As you give yourself to the tax, task, rather, commit yourself, number one, to begin your pursuit with prayer. Isn't that what Paul says? Continue steadfastly in prayer. Pray also for me. And when he's talking about prayer, notice he says be watchful. See that word in verse two, watchful. The word literally means to stay alert. Anybody here have a problem staying alert? It's present tense, which means you keep staying alert. I remember when I became a Christian, there were two professors from the local Bible college that came to the town where I was living, and they taught on the Holy Spirit and evangelism. That was a brand new Christian, and the professor was talking and giving us tools for evangelism, but then he said this, and it changed my life. I'm telling you, it changed my life, and I was a brand new Christian. He said, on your way home tonight, here's what I want you to do. I want you to go through the neighborhood as you get to your home and identify every house in the neighborhood. As you go there and say, hey, there's the Browns. Nice people, but they're not Christians. If they die, they're going to hell. Just say that. And there's the, there's the Stevensons. Oh, neat people. They go to a different church, but they love Christ. They love the gospel. Neat people, love Jesus. And there's, there's the Jones. Oh, Jones is cool, really nice, good, faithful worker, nice neighbor, not a Christian. If he dies, he'll go to hell. And I did that that night. It literally changed my life. From that day forward, as God himself is my witness, as best as I know how, I've never met anyone that I did not know for the very first time without looking at them and thinking, he's saved and going to heaven or he's lost and going to hell. It doesn't mean that I judge them. It doesn't mean that I've even, I even witnessed to them. In, many, in probably most cases, I didn't get a chance to witness to them. But I orient my thinking that way. That way, that's what it means to be watchful. Otherwise, you're just totally terra firma. You're totally earthly. Think that way. Begin your pursuit with prayer. And I know, I've heard people say, well, you know, I just don't get the opportunities. Uh, maybe you're not looking He's not just watchful, he says, be, he's, he's specific, he says, pray for open doors. That's the New Testament prayer. Not for people to be saved, you can pray that in, but the focus is more on open doors. Pray for open doors. I don't know of any prayer you'll ever pray more quickly answered than that one. By the way, Paul was probably staring at a door when he wrote this, one that he couldn't get out that was locked. John Phillips was right when he said, prayer opens prisons, door, doors, sinners' hearts, and believers' mouths. So do that. Secondly, present your gospel with clarity. Present your gospel with clarity. Oh, by the way, that's not a type error. Some of you are going, what do you mean the gospel, don't you? No, I mean your gospel, if it is yours. Did you know that not once but twice in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul called the gospel my gospel? Did you know that? Don't look it up now. Look it up later. In other words, he was owning it. 
It was his gospel. It was his good news, the good news that changed his heart. And now as a possessor of the gospel, he wanted to give it to others. So present your gospel with, what's the word? Clarity. And he says in verse 4, make it clear. That's a great translation of the Greek word here. The word means to be conspicuous. It means to be visible. It means to be clear. And the only thing worse than no gospel is an unclear gospel because that'll misguide people all the time. I used to pastor a little country church. Some of you have seen the little, they call them track racks, uh, little racks that would be on the wall that have little pamphlets in there and telling people how they could be saved. You've seen those, some of you have, right? And I was standing at the door at the end of the sermon and at the end of the service, and the track rack was right behind me. I was just sort of oblivious to it. It was right there. And a visitor walks through the line. He shakes my hand. He goes, so uh, what is it, uh, four steps to heaven or five? And I go, what? <laughs> it, is it four steps to heaven or is it five? I said, what are you talking about, man? He goes, I'm just looking up here. And over my shoulder, there was a track, I kid you not, in the corner that said four steps to heaven. And there was one down here in this corner that said five steps to heaven. I pulled the five steps out. Less complicated. Talk about lack of clarity. Unbelievable. Listen, sharing the gospel requires, mark it down, accuracy, clarity, and power. That's the, those are the three things you need. Accuracy, clarity, and power. Now listen closely. Accuracy requires knowledge. You gotta know the gospel. You can't share the gospel unless you know the gospel. You can't talk about God unless you know God. You can't talk about Jesus unless you know Jesus. And you need to know something about Jesus, who he is, why he came, why he died, why he rose. You gotta know about, you gotta be able to talk about sin and that which separates man from God. You need to be able to talk about salvation through the cross. You need to talk about faith. And you need to talk about the new birth, what it means and what happens when a person places their faith in Jesus, how their hearts and their lives are changed through repentance and faith in Christ. Accuracy. We always tell people when you're sharing your own testimony, which next to the word of God is the most powerful thing you can share, don't gloss over the crossover. And I've heard a lot of people gloss over the crossover. Yeah, you know, I was really taking drugs and everything, and now I just, I'm in church all the time. Oh, like the church just saved you? Don't gloss over the crossover. You got to make it clear. It's your gospel, which includes your story. Accuracy requires knowledge. Now listen to this. Clarity requires speaking. I know, shy ones, that's a hard one. But you got to talk at some point. Second Corinthians chapter 4, verse 13, Paul says, I believe, therefore I spoke. Have you ever read that? Now, this is the encouraging thing to you because, well, let, let, before I, I don't want to get too far ahead of myself here. Because in a parallel account, now Paul in that same prison wrote to the Ephesians. And he wrote, they, they did, when you read Colossians and the Ephesians, they look a lot alike. And you come to the last chapter, he's asking for the same thing, praying for me that I get opportunities. And then he says this. He says, pray for me in Ephesians 619, he says, pray that utterance would be given to me. It's a pretty cool word. It's the word lagos, the word for word, but it literally the root of the word means speaking to a conclusion. Clarity requires speaking, and you speak to a conclusion. You're not just going around the mulberry bush. 
You're getting to the point. You don't get to the point and say, and that's when I got closer to God. And that's when God really started, he saved my marriage. Hey, how about saving your soul for crying out loud? That's where it begins, right? Thank God for the marriage. Thank God for the changes. But it starts with the saving of the soul. So, if you're going to be involved in gospel ministry, sharing it requires accuracy, clarity, and power. Accuracy requires knowledge. Clarity requires speaking. And power, watch this, because this is the most encouraging thing you're going to hear, requires dependence. You can do that. Listen, sharing the gospel has nothing to do with eloquence. You don't have to be eloquent. In fact, God would say just the opposite is true. When Paul spoke to the Corinthians, he reminded them. They were so powerfully impacted by the intelligentsia of that day. He said, I, when I came to you, I didn't come with excellency of speech or wisdom declaring to you the testimony of God. For I was with you, watch this, in weakness and fear and much trembling. That doesn't sound like a, you know, <laughs> guy. Just the opposite. Weakness, fear, much trembling. Meekness, fear, much trembling. And he says, so that the reason I came to you like that, watch this, is so that your faith might not be in the wisdom of man, but in the power of God. It's God's power that saves, not yours. It's God's word that saves, not eloquence. Many of you have heard the story of my story, being in a a factory, John Deere, having a guy talk to me about Jesus. His name was Nick. And when I met Nick, I knew there was something wrong with him. Really, there was something wrong with him. He'd been in a motorcycle accident two years earlier. A head injury, serious head injury, nearly died. And when he started talking about Jesus, he, his speech was halting. He stuttered. He stammered. He struggled. But the power of God was so evident in his life. I had to listen to him. And I did listen to him. And God saved me. So hear this and be encouraged. Sharing Christ involves accuracy, clarity, and power. Power from God. Listen to how Paul himself, actually Jesus, Paul is testifying to King Agrippa and he tells King Agrippa what Jesus said to him at his, at, right after he gets saved. And look, listen to the clarity of this. this is Jesus, these are Jesus' words. I'm sending you to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. That's clarity. Open their eyes. We're in the business of lifting the veils from people's eyes. And that takes clarity. Thirdly, accept the obligation with joy. Okay? There is something obligatory about sharing Jesus. Did you see at the very end of verse 4? You could almost miss this. He says, as I ought to speak. See that there? See that word ought? That carries a moral obligation. You know, it's, there's a law in many states, I don't know about the state of Iowa, but the, the duty to rescue is a concept that a number of state laws have. It basically says that you can be held liable if 
You refuse to rescue somebody who's facing injury or death if you are capable of so doing. Just think about that, will you, for a moment? Has anybody ever heard of, of the magician comedy act, Penn and Teller? Raise your hand if you have. Okay, so yeah, they've been around for years. They're hilarious, they're amazing, and they're incredibly crass. They also hate Christianity and the Bible. They're avowed atheist. So Penn Gillette one day, was, it was after his, after his performance, a guy had come up to him with the Bible, shared Christ with him. He talked about how gracious this man, he was very impressed. He was inc- this atheist was incredibly impressed with him as this man pressed him to be saved. And then in a moment of thought, this atheist spoke and said, he flipped his phone open and videotaped himself in his dressing room and he said these words, listen carefully. Uh, how much do you have to hate somebody to not proselytize? How much do you have to hate somebody to believe that everlasting life is possible and not tell them that? I mean, if I believed beyond a shadow of a doubt that a truck was coming at you and you didn't believe it, that truck was bearing down on you, there's a certain point where I tackle you. And this is more important than that. This is from an avowed atheist. He gets it. Do you get it? That you have a moral obligation to share Jesus with others? Now, I know right now you're feeling the guilt. So just chill for a minute. A little pastoral moment to all of you. Philemon was commended by the Apostle Paul as much as anybody in the entire New Testament. Quickly, I'll tell you. He commended him for being a worker. He commended him for his love. He commended him for his faith. He he commended him for his encouragement. He commended him for his obedience. He commended him for his hospitality. And he commends him as a man of prayer. Really confident that his prayers are going to get Paul released. The one thing that Paul doesn't commend Philemon in is evangelism. But he, he does pray that he'll be evangelistic. Do you remember that message a couple weeks back? Verse six, I pray that you will be effective in the sharing of your faith. Translation, he isn't yet. I want you to be. I want you to be as well. I thought about a number of you as I thought about Philemon because you could meet many of those commendations and be happy with it. In fact, you are, some of you. You're just happy with those other, I mean, that's a, that's a stellar list of characteristics, right? Love, faith, obedience, hospitality, prayer, encouragement, work. But you know nothing of evangelism. And you might think, well, it's not my gift to evangelize. Let me just list some of the gifts in the, list, in the gift list of the Bible. Wisdom, knowledge, faith, teaching, speaking, Serving, helping, all those are listed as gifts. What if all those listed of gifts as gifts that I just, and there are others, but all the ones I just named, what if you would say, yeah, well, uh, you know, none of those are really my gifts that you just listed. Should you then conclude that you should never serve, never help, never speak, Never gain knowledge, never ask for wisdom, never demonstrate faith? Of course not, you would say. No, 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 I I need to be obedient in those areas. How about evangelism? 
Look again what Paul says, as I ought to speak. There's a moral obligation here. Accept it with joy. Fourthly, take the opportunity when it presents itself. Making the best use of time, Paul says there in verse four, I think it is. Make the best use of time. Are you making the best use of your time? The word means to redeem, means to buy up. It pictures walking into a, a place that has a, you, you see a bargain that it, you know, you're going to lose the bargain and you're not going to get it if you don't act upon it now. A little bit like those infomercials. Act now, next 15 minutes, and we'll take $20, $20 off the cost. And you're, you know. The word time here is not the word chronos, where we get our chronology. It's the word kairos. Why do I share that with you? Because they're cool Greek words. No, I'm kidding. Because the word kairos, watch this, literally means a specific irretrievable period of time. You don't get it back. Like the one we told you about about a month ago in our church with permission from him. He, his best friend was dying of cancer and died of cancer and he never told him about Jesus. That's a time he'll never get back. So the point is, Take the opportunity when it presents itself. Fifthly, share your story with grace. He says, let your speech be gracious, always gracious, seasoned with salt. Now, wait, you don't need to interpret that. You get what that means. Speech that's gracious and seasoned with salt hardly needs interpretation. It's the opposite of vulgar. It's the opposite of confrontational. It's the opposite of being mean-spirited. It's the opposite of obnoxious. The word grace is the word charis. We have somebody I know, we have at least one young, one little girl's name is Charis in our church. It means kindness. It means kindness. As I was finishing up this last night, I got a text from a woman in our church who was burdened for her 70-some-year-old neighbor. She saw him in his lawn with a spade digging up weeds last night. So she walked across the street and sat down on the driveway next to him. He's a Christian science guy. Christian science is a cult. They don't believe in the Bible. They don't believe in the authority of God. They don't believe in the gospel. But back and forth they went just sharing, swapping life stories. This young woman in our church. And within an hour he was asking her about faith in Christ and whether or not that's what it took to become a Christian. How did that happen? through gracious, salty speech. And what does Paul say at the end of that section? He says this, so that you know how you ought to answer each person. You want to know how to answer someone when they're asking questions? Anybody asking you any questions? God, thank you for the opportunity to open your word, conclude our time in Philemon, and challenge us to befriend people for Jesus' sake. We're grateful today, Lord, for the gospel that saved us. And I pray that you would cause a spirit within all of us here, if we have believed, that we would speak. And there are some here that have not believed. They're outsiders looking in, Lord. Help them to see their need for the gospel and to believe that Jesus, the God of the universe who created all things, became a man 
lived perfectly, died for their sins on the cross and rose again, if that's you, dear friend, and you want him to save you, then place your faith in him now. And God, raise up a mighty tribe of people from this very church that will be committed to the gospel and befriending others. For Jesus' sake, we pray in his name. Amen. Let's all stand.